Well, what can you say about Judges 19? Perhaps you read the passage this morning or when I sent out the weekly reminder about worship on Friday. This is without question one of the most challenging stories in the entire Old Testament, if not the entire Bible. So be thankful that tomorrow is a holiday so that we can all recover from what we're about to read here in Judges chapter 19 this morning. Chapter 19 begins the fourth and final section of the book of Judges. Section 1, chapter 1 to chapter 3, verse 6. Section 2, chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 16. Section 3, which we looked at last week, Judges 17 and 18. And now the final section begins with Judges 19 through the end of the book, chapter 21. With each judge... With each chapter, really, we have seen the corruption within Israel continue to increase. They are becoming more and more like Canaan, more and more like the other nations surrounding them. We saw it initially through the sin of their military battles that they would have with all of these various nations. We saw it last week, how their sin had spilled into their religious practice. And now today we're going to see how their sin spills over into their morality. And my hope in teaching through this passage is that you will come to realize ultimately the evil, the wickedness, the twistedness, the perverseness of your own heart and of my own heart. Judges 19 shows us what humanity is capable of. So as we work our way through this chapter today, not to scare you at the start, We're going to be looking at a loving father-in-law, first and foremost. Number two, a confused man. And then number three, a divided nation. So a loving father-in-law, a confused man, and a divided nation. So in Judges 19, look at that opening verse. There was no king in Israel. We have now seen this phrase seven times in the book of Judges, like I said last week, and over 20 times in Samuel and Kings. This verse is, number one, a chronological timeline for you to realize that we have not arrived into the period of the Kings, which comes later in the biblical text, but also a clue to the void of leadership that existed within the nation of Israel at this time. Remember that phrase that we have read over and over again. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So as we arrive into chapter 19, we're definitely going to see that in this passage today. And we read in chapter 19 about another Levite. Remember, we read about a Levite last week. In chapters 17 and 18. But this is a different Levite. He was sojourning in Ephraim. And he had a concubine from Bethlehem in Judea. This is very similar to Judges 17 verses 7 and 8 last week. Where we learned about another Levite. Who was from Bethlehem of Judea. Sojourning in Ephraim. But in this passage. The Levite is sojourning in Ephraim. But he's traveling to Bethlehem of Judea. Now, what is a concubine? Biblically, a concubine is basically a second-class wife. It was an additional wife to ensure that if 
the man's husband, if the man's wife could not produce children, this was a backup to that. But in addition to that, it was an all, also an additional sexual partner for the husband. Not endorsed by the Lord, something that Israel did on their own. So when you read passages throughout the Old Testament about concubines, this is God not prescribing for us to do this. This is the Israelites acting in their own. These are descriptive details, not prescriptive details. And we read in verse 2 that the Levite's concubine was unfaithful to him. Now, if you look up the Hebrew of this term unfaithful, it literally means basically play the part of a prostitute. So one of two things is occurring here. Either this concubine was actually unfaithful to her husband, or number two, she was just tired of being the second fiddle, tired of being the second wife. So she returns home to her father. And here's where we're going to pick up the story in verses 3 through 9. Let's read it. Beginning in verse 3. Then her husband arose and went after her, that is the Levite, to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay And he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning. And he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. And after that, you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he rose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, behold, Now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. So like a faithful husband, this Levite pursues his concubine. He's going after her. And when he arrives, the father-in-law is ecstatic to receive him. Probably because we know that in ancient times, the wife was completely dependent on her husband for provision, for protection. So the father-in-law is excited because this husband is coming to retrieve his concubine that had wandered away from him. And the celebration, we're told, is enormous. Day after day of eating and drinking and celebrating. The Levite wakes up on the fourth day wanting to return home. The father-in-law convinces him to stay yet another day. He wakes up on the fifth day wanting to leave again. The father-in-law says, why don't you wait till the cool of the evening? The Levite's getting a little bit tired of this hospitality. You know, you can only stay with your in-laws so long, right? I'm a joking, right? Seriously, don't tell my in-laws I said that. So this Levite, he's ready to go. 
Not necessarily because he doesn't love his father-in-law, but he's ready to get on the road, ready to get home. He leaves in the evening. Now, that's going to be significant later in the story. He leaves in the evening. He's tired of sitting around and eating and drinking. He wants to take his wife and go home. So we're told in verse 10 that finally the Levite and his wife, they leave at night. Remember, that's an important detail later in the story. Had they left in the morning, they might have been able to cover more ground, perhaps make it all the way home. But because they leave at night, this ensures that they will have to stop somewhere on their journey. And we're told that they arrive at Jebus. Now that's about six miles from Bethlehem. Jebus is Jerusalem. Before, it's called Jerusalem. We're told in Judges chapter 1, verse 2, you don't have to turn there, but this land was supposed to be conquered by the Benjaminites. They were supposed to go in and take this land for themselves. But as we've learned throughout the book of Judges, what often happened is, instead of the Israelites driving out all of these nations, they occupy the land, but they don't take the land. They allow these opposing nations to continue to set up residency alongside the various tribes. So the Benjaminites were supposed to have taken this land. They didn't do it. The Jebusites still live here. Now look at the response of the Levite in this passage in verses 12 and 13 of our text. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So the Levite had made the decision. We're not staying in Jebus. This is not our land. It's never been completely conquered. We will receive far better hospitality, far better treatment if we continue on into Gibeah or Ramah, which was the place where the Benjaminites dwelled. It was roughly five to six miles north of Jerusalem. So they keep traveling on, and they finally stop at Gibeah. Look at verse 15. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in, the Levite, and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took him into his house to spend the night. The Levite was thinking, if we go on into Gibeah, these are our people. These are our kinsmen. They will provide for us. They will give us hospitality. They will care for our donkeys. And what you realize is when someone sits in the open square of the city, that means that they have not received hospitality. What is happening here in Gibeah? These are God's people not extending hospitality to God's people. There is no community happening in Gibeah whatsoever. So the Levite and his concubine and his donkeys and all of his traveling companions, they sit in the open square of the city awaiting to see what will happen. Later in the text, they, re they meet a confused old man. We're told about a man who had just finished working in the fields. 
And he comes back in and he notices this Levite and his concubine and all of his companions out in the middle of the city. And look at verses 20 and 21. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and he gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and ate and drank. This old man provides hospitality. He takes care of this Levite. Everything is now working out according to plan. Except, read verses 22 to 24. The text tells us, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man, that is the Levite, who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. What is going on in Gibeah? Why are these fellow Israelites treating this Levite and his family with such lack of compassion? Now, the word that is used here, worthless men, it can be translated as wicked, good for nothing. Any negative adjective you want to use to describe the men of Gibeah, it would be fitting in this passage. What do they want to do to the Levite? Well, to know him is a euphemism for sex. They want to violate and abuse this Levite. They don't want to invite him over to get to know him, give him dinner, show him the community, be very hospitable to him. They don't want to get to know him in the way that we think of getting to know someone. They want to abuse him. They want to violate him. By the way, the story gets worse, so stay with me. So the old man who showed this hospitality to him, the reason I call him confused is because, yes, he does extend hospitality to the Levite and his family, but when these men knock on the door and they seek out the Levite, here's what the old man does. He approaches them and he says, please do not do this to this man. And he offers an exchange. Instead of taking the Levite, this confused, sinful old man tells the men of Gibeah, you can take my daughter and you can take the Levite's concubine instead. Do whatever it is you want to do with them, but leave the Levite alone. Now, let me ask all of the fathers in the room for a moment. Could you imagine a scenario where you would ever exchange out a friend for your own daughter in this type of setting? The answer is no. You probably cannot imagine a scenario, but that is exactly what happened in this text. Are you noticing here the level of corruption in this chapter? Increasing with every verse that we read. The amount of sin in this passage is rampant. The old man is more concerned about saving face with the Levite than he is his own daughter and the Levite's concubine. 
the author of Judges, wants us to see just how wicked and evil and sinful we can be. Now, as you experience the full emotion of this text, let me caution you to not simply look at the men of Gibeah and say, shame on them, but rather reflect on your own sin. Reflect in your own heart and in your own mind because barring the grace of God in our lives, we are actually capable of what we read about in this passage. Now, I realize this is a rather extreme example of sin, and it's hideous, and it's vile, but the overt sin described here of violating and abusing two innocent women is equally, in some ways, as sinful as the hidden sins of lust within our hearts and within our minds. Both sins will lead a person to hell apart from repentance and faith in Christ alone. So when I read a text like this, my mind goes to, is it possible for me to be so deep in my sin that I would be capable of something like this? And biblically, the answer is, apart from the imputed righteousness of Jesus in me, this is who I am. So when we read stories like this of the men of Gibeah, or we read about fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who fall, fellow pastors who fall from grace, our response should not be shame on them, but our response should be, God, show me my sin. Because we're all vile and wicked at our core. Look at verse 25. The men would not listen to him. That is the old man. So the man, this would be the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. Number three, I want you to see a divided nation. Look at verses 26 through 30 in this passage. Here's what the text tells us. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And when her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. So this Levite gets ready to return home And you'll notice there's a lot of unanswered questions here. Intentional on the part of the author. 
Think through some of these questions with me. Number one, the text tells us that the Levite just woke up the next morning and was ready to go home. Do you think he slept well that night? Perhaps he did. If so, we see the evil of his heart. Was he really about to just head out the next morning and leave his concubine without finding out where she was? If so, once again, we see the evil of his heart. Why does he speak to her in such a callous and cold manner based on what she had just experienced? Verse 28 tells us, he just said, get up, let's go home. Lack of compassion. He shows no compassion to her whatsoever after such a traumatic event. Another question we have to ask, is the concubine at this point dead or alive? The text tells us that she never spoke. The commentaries are split on this. Some think she was dead, some think she was alive. The text doesn't really give us a clear indication. If she's not dead, then the Levite murders her. If she is dead, then he does not give her a proper burial whatsoever. So we're stuck in this passage dealing with the tension of having all of these questions left unanswered, intentional on the part of the author. After arriving home, takes the body, cuts it up, sends it throughout Israel. This is far worse than any episode of Law and Order you've ever seen. And he sends these body parts all over to the various tribes of Israel. Why would the Levite do this? This is a call to arms. This is a declaration of war. He is sending out her body parts all over to these tribes saying, the Benjaminites must pay for what they have done. This evil must be dealt with. They must be held accountable. This is the beginning of civil war. Now, even though we realize that the true split of the nation of Israel doesn't come until some time later when the northern and the southern kingdom divide out, but this is a declaration of war. This Levite wants all of the tribes of Israel to know that this must be dealt with. Sin has caused great division and 12 pieces of this lady have been scattered all over the nation. Here's what I haven't shared with you, though. Perhaps the most somber part of this entire episode. If you look closely at the account of Judges 19 and Genesis 19, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you will see an eerie amount of similarities. Let's talk through some of them. Of the words found in Genesis 19, a fourth of those exact words occur here in Judges 19. Both accounts have a traveler entering a town. Both have a host urging the guests to leave the open square of the city. All of the men in the city in both stories surround the house. The men of both cities make the same demand of the host. Genesis 19.5, bring them out to us that we may know them. Judges 19.22, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. In both accounts, the host goes out first to meet the men and leaves the guest in the house. The host pleads with the men in both stories not to do this wicked thing. Genesis 19.7 says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Judges 19.23, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. 
The host offers two women in both stories. Genesis 19.8, do to them as you please. Judges 19.24, do with them what seems good to you. In both stories, the men of the city do not want the woman as the substitute. And in both counts, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and later we will learn the city of Gibeah is burned with fire. These parallels, brothers and sisters, are no accident. Sodom and Gomorrah were wicked, godless cities who cared nothing about Yahweh. And now we arrive at Gibeah, full of wickedness, who cares nothing about Yahweh. You see, it's one thing to read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19 and leave thinking, yeah, but those people are lost. They didn't know any better. They were not God's people. Well, how do you handle Judges 19? Because these are Israelites. These are people that are supposed to know better. As we approach the end of Judges 19, what you are to walk away with is that Gibeah is now Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me speak to all of the Christians in the room for a moment. What we read about in Genesis 19 and Judges 19, we're still capable of. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that great passage that Paul talks about when he describes what we are like at our core, apart from faith in Christ. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. While these verses might describe what we're like prior to faith in Christ, just, how, just think about how easy it would be if we're not pursuing Christ wholeheartedly to revert back to the type of sin that we read about in Ephesians 2, and God forbid that we read about even in Judges 19. And for those not in Christ today, this is who we are. We're sinful. We're wicked. We're evil. Judges 19 is here to call both Christian and non-Christian to repentance, to turn from sin. The other day I heard a former NFL coach, he was getting asked a question about something that he had done inappropriately, and his response was, well, we all make mistakes. You know, I'm a good person. I go to church. I've been married 31 years. I have three grown sons that are productive members of society. And whether he meant to communicate it or not, what he was saying is, I'm justified in my behavior because I'm a good person. Because I show up to church. Because I've been faithful to my wife for 31 years. Because I have three sons that aren't in jail. That does not justify you before Christ. Judges 19 is very clear. Did you notice in this story 
who the substitute was? Think about it for a moment. The innocent concubine in this story, she served the men of Gibeah as the substitute for who? The holy man of God, the Levite. The Levite, this holy man who conducted the priestly duties within Israel, he seizes his innocent concubine and he throws her out to the evil men of Gibeah to be violated and abused. This is an anti-gospel story. Because in the gospel, the holy man, Jesus, he doesn't throw us out, even though we're actually the evil men of Gibeah. That's who we are at our core. Jesus was beaten, mocked, spit upon, bruised, ultimately crucified for our sin. Jesus took on our sin. He was the substitute that this cowardly Levite was not willing to be. The innocent concubine thrown out to the evil men of Gibeah, where Jesus, the perfect, innocent, holy man, took on our sin and received the death that we deserve. He became, essentially, the men of Gibeah for us. And the wrath of God, instead of being poured out on us for our sin, was poured out on Jesus. Please, do not leave here today with this very disturbing passage and think, because you've never committed such a wicked deed as we read about here in Judges 19, that you're somehow good with God and that your eternity is secure. Because unless you repent of your sin and believe in the finished work of Christ and trust in his power, in his death, and in his resurrection to reconcile you to a holy God, you will spend eternity apart from God. Judges 19 brings us face to face with two realities. Number one, the sinfulness of man. But number two, a savior who saves his people from their sin. So when you look at this text, the response is not, how can a human being do this? The response is, how could I potentially do this if it wasn't for Christ transforming my heart through his imputed righteousness which I receive in repentance and faith? Odds are you're not going to spend the rest of your life deep diving into Judges 19. It's probably not going to be a bedtime story with your children or your grandchildren. But no matter what story you're in, Find Jesus. Get to Christ. Communicate to your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your children, or your grandchildren that every single story in God's word, even Judges 19, is there to show you that there is a Savior who is bigger than our sin. The gospel is not something that we can ever achieve. It's merely something that we receive. We repent of our sin. 
We put our faith in Christ alone, and we are restored to a holy God. God's grace and God's mercy is far greater than the sin that is within our own hearts and minds. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you in prayer, even I sometimes wonder, why did you include the story? What do you want us to see? And I think the answer is very clear. At our core, apart from Jesus changing our hearts, we are evil, we are wicked, we are perverse. But in spite of that, you sent Jesus to take on our sin and receive the wrath that we deserved for our sin. So our response to this passage is worship. Thank you, Jesus, for the forgiveness we can receive. God, if there's anyone here today that has never repented of their sin and believed in the gospel, I pray that you would pierce their heart right now. I pray that they don't leave here today thinking that because they're a good person, because they've been faithful to their wife, because their kids are not in jail, they're nice to people, that somehow that would make them right with you. It won't. Show them their sin. And for all of us that are in Christ, may we fall on our knees in humility and thank you for your grace and your mercy. And may we strive towards holiness and righteousness as we study your word, as we pray, as we gather every week for worship. Father, we love you. And we thank you for who you are. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.